Welcome to the first episode of Breaking Bud, a podcast where we explore and navigate the world of cannabis, including the industry, culture, wellness, law, history, representation, social justice, and science. At Breaking Bud, we understand that we are a newer generation that is ushering ourselves into an industry with a complex history. With this in mind, we are working to understand our privilege as we enter this industry during the 2020s, while also fighting to normalize the beautiful green plant and elevate underrepresented voices that made this industry what it is today. My name is Nyla Patrick, and I am the host for Breaking Bud by Cannabis at USC. I'm the Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Wellness here at our registered student organization. Today with me, I have the honor of being accompanied by a special guest by the name of Dr. Terry Church. Welcome, Dr. Church. Thank you. He is a professor here at the University of Southern California. He studied his undergrad at the University of Bradford, and he received his MA in Culture cultural anthropology at Temple University, and he earned his MS and doctor, doctorate in science at the University of Southern California. Today, he is an expert in biorecipository regulation and ethics, history of drugs, drug addiction, the regulation of controlled substances, and why we do it. Welcome to Breaking Bud. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So, in today's episode, I want to unpack the war on drugs. I am a person who loves history. I love context because I think that's something that's always important to understand when approaching different topics, especially controversial topics like cannabis, because it has such a rich history and not to take that into consideration would be ignoring the people who lost lives and were criminalized and put in jail, incarcerated for this drug or for this plant. So yeah, I wanted to first ask you, what would you say is the core strategy for the war on drugs? Uh, so officially, the core strategy is to eradicate drugs, to make our, our borders safer, to make our nation cleaner. And by cleaner, I mean fewer drug addicts, fewer drugs getting into the system. But that's just the surface level. Um, truly what it is, is a way of adding additional oppression to people who are already marginalized. Um, and the reason that that's being done is we've reached into an era where you no longer have uh, the racist South as you once did before. You no longer have segregation and the easiest way to apply those same racial categories and same racial connotations is to do it through drugs. And I, the reason I say that is throughout history, we've added a specific subgroup to the drugs that we are trying to um, regulate. And so if you look historically, it's, we've had a long history of doing this, and it's something that we continue, unfortunately, and it needs to really be evaluated and stopped. I hear you. Um, I would love to just kind of go through, not a brief history, but I'd like to like take a journey through time and kind sure. of unpack that for listeners like me who are Gen Z, we're interested in joining the industry, but I think it's very important for my peers to understand why we see cannabis the way we see it today. And so um, I would like to talk about how you mentioned earlier, this is surrounded by race. So 
um, the opium, opium in, was it the 1800s? Yep. And um, Chinese immigrants, they were working on the railroad. And if I'm correct, were Chinese immigrants the only ones that were smoking it? Oh, no, never. Uh, okay. That's the that's the weird thing. You know, okay. we target these things at, at racial categories and groups and try to pin it all on them and say, oh, look it, they're, they're the other, they're the bad ones, gotcha. they're doing this behavior, and we need to stop it. But in fact, it's usually the white suburban kids okay. who are consuming most, most of it. I hear you. Um, but in this case, it was not solely just the Chinese. Okay. It was uh, a lot of people in San Francisco um, where they started to do the push to get opium removed as a as a legal drug. And the whole reason they kept saying there are all these smoking dens and if we allow right, Chinatown to dens. continue, yep, um, we'll have a disaster in the city because everyone will be turned into uh, opium zombies, basically. Yes, I read that society was scared that like white girls would go into the opium dens and start having sex. So it, it's always the white girls, isn't it? Yeah, and, <laughs> it always is. <laughs> um, yeah, so... You know, it's it's always this idea of how can you put the most fear into people? And right. at the time, the majority, the hegemony, what they were white individuals. So the easiest way to target them is say, look, they're coming after your girls. And in fact, they may have been seeking it out on their own and not being exposed to it other than their own desire to try it. Um, but here we are having this conversation about people trying to manipulate others into thinking, oh, if you allow it into your neighborhood in one person, it's going to infect everyone because they're coming after your girls. They're coming right. after your kids. <laughs> right. When would you pinpoint the beginning of the war on drugs? Ooh. Ah, uh, so... I would actually say 1937. Now, that's not the official date because it really is around 1973 where we start the quote-unquote official war on drugs with President Nixon, which then transcends about a decade later into uh, Ronald Reagan's second war on drugs. Um, if I were to pick which one was the better of the two, I would have to go with Nixon, which is pretty hard to say as a Democrat. Um, but, you know... <laughs> You, you deal with what you've got, right? Right. Um, but the reason I say 1937 is that is when California made cannabis illegal. And in doing so, they spurred the rest of the nation to move it towards being illegal. Um, and when you, they did that, we lost nearly 200 different medicines that we were currently using at the time related to cannabis. Right. So when you say 1937... I believe you're referring to the Marijuana Tax Act, right? You got it. <laughs> and it got passed a year after uh, Reefer Madness was actually released, which was a movie where um, teenagers tried cannabis for the first time and it made them very violent and sexual. And I think there, were, there was a murder. There was a murder, a rape, all kinds of yeah. really crazy stuff happening from just, you know, having one puff off of the joint, which, you know... If that's the case, I think we would have seen a lot more deaths in the U.S., for sure. Um, it's definitely one of those uh, propaganda films and really started the whole idea of PSAs um, that don't have good information. And that culminates in the 80s where you have things like Just Say No. Right. Which doesn't tell Nancy us much. Reagan. Exactly. Um, and also uh, the other big one, This Is Your Brain. This Is Your Brain on Drugs. And you see the frying egg in the pan. My question to that always was, where are the home fries? 
Um, but it, it really is a series of events that the government is trying to manipulate people into thinking the worst. Um, and through fear, that's the way that they curtail in their minds behavior. And then I don't I want to jump a little bit. Sure. I want to go to Harry Anslinger. Ooh, okay. Um at his time, prohibition of alcohol had kind of just gotten like taken care of and so he moved on to cannabis. He did. Um well, he made a, a segue through cocaine and then on to cannabis. Gotcha. Um, and his targets for those were one, African-American males in the South, and two, uh, immigrants coming up from Mexico. Um, and he saw it as bringing the marijuana, quote unquote, because that's kind of a racialized term. Right. Uh, I try not to use it. I find myself slipping into it every once in a while. Uh, cannabis is the preferred term, but marijuana is just a bastardization of Mary Jane. Um, Mary Juana. Mm -hmm. It's trying to make fun of uh, Latinx heritage coming up from from Mexico. Right. Uh, because in Harry, in his mind, in Harry's mind, he was seeing it as um, something that people did if they were lazy because you'd smoke the weed and then you'd eat and then all you'd want to do is lay around and you weren't productive to society. Right. Um, meanwhile, and these are industrious people who've come up from Mexico. They've brought their trade. They've brought their craft skills. And they're applying them to rebuilding the South after World, after world War II. Yeah, no, sorry. After um, the Civil War. And here he is belittling them for doing that and saying, look, they're also bringing with them this cannabis, this marijuana, this devil's weed. And they are starting to impact the society that we have they're starting to target our young our youth they're targeting our wives our sisters our mothers um and he created this whole campaign he actually funded partially the film reefer madness so oh, wow um that's how deep it goes with him that's actually interesting because he is the man behind the marijuana tax act right yep they uh call him the architect of the war on drugs yes Harry Anslinger, everyone, is, or he was the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the Prohibition era. And once national prohibition ended in 1993, he turned his focus to um, other drugs. And this is where racism and a lot of xenophobia picked or kicked in. He took scientifically unsupported ideas that weed was going to make everyone crazy and it was a violence inducing drug and he connected that with black and latin ex-people in fact he just created the perfect like package of fear to sell to the american society and media and he really emphasized the word marijuana as you mentioned dr church they wanted to associate it with the latinx immigrants because before this era not a lot of people knew that you could actually recreationally smoke the plant hemp was widely used in the yeah. united states already but a lot of people didn't know that so he took advantage of that fact and he pushed that idea he also associated cannabis with jazz and evil music yeah which, yeah which is awful because jazz itself is such a marvelous it's thing. It's so beautiful. And the one thing that I will say about jazz is no matter what city you were in, and I, I won't argue styles because everyone has their own jazz style that they're drawn to, but Chicago, New Orleans, Philadelphia, all of those cities were segregated. Yeah. And the one place that you could go and be 
who you wanted to be, where it didn't matter, was the jazz club. It was a place where you could go and you could smoke cigarettes, you could drink, you could uh, smoke weed, you could do all kinds of things there that you couldn't out in regular society. And it normalized people. If you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were white, it didn't matter. Inside the jazz hall, all that mattered was the music. And it's a beautiful thing to think about. The sad part is, once you left the jazz hall, all of those categories that society assigns to you or that you ascribe to yourself fall back on you. Um, so jazz was kind of the unique place. It was the place where everything could be okay and equalized. Um, I have a huge passion for jazz for that fact. I was actually so excited to learn that Louis Armstrong was a stoner. I didn't know that. And... Uh... That made me proud. <laughs> <laughs> Him and, and many, many others. Um, it's, it's amazing. And if you listen to some of the songs and just the way the melodies are put together and the tones, it lends itself very nicely to uh, partaking in cannabis. What's really unfortunate is after the first year that the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, Black people were three times more likely to get arrested for narcotic possession than whites. And... Um, Mexican-Americans were nine times more likely to be arrested for the same charge. Yes. Um, and if you if let's fast forward those numbers a little bit. If you look at it at the end of the war on drugs, the second war on drugs, Ronald Reagan's era, you now have roughly 400,000 people incarcerated. And of that, only one quarter are actually felony crimes that are really bad ones. Um, the majority of people who are being put into prison, you have African-Americans at the top of the list, followed by Hispanics and then Caucasians way down on the very bottom of the list. So what that tells you is going all the way back to the point that you just brought up, where you had all of these incarcerations that were happening, and it's happening at a level that is clearly across racial lines. It's clearly across ethnic lines. And it fast forwards to today where you have this misconception in the white community that it's okay if I do drugs, I'm not going to get arrested for it. And unfortunately, that needs to change as well, because I will tell you this, being white myself, the driver of a lot of our drug problem uh, in terms of some really hardcore drugs is the white suburban family, the affluent family, the kids don't have anything to do. They act out, they, you know, go be wild. And where do they go? inner city to purchase the stuff uh, that they want to get, which adds to the crime and deterioration of those urban centers and also pushes more and more people into a really rough paradigm because you have structural violence now that's enforcing those values within the inner city, keeping people oppressed. Um, because what happens when you have a drug neighborhood? Your businesses leave. Your schools tend to not attract the best teachers and it becomes a perpetuating cycle because it's easier to look and see someone on the street making tons of money every day and think, why do I have to go to college? Why can't I just do that and sling drugs? So it's created this massive set of problems because you have one group of individuals who are kind of driving the whole drug trade and another group of individuals who have fallen into it, not because they want to, but because of happenstance, because there's nothing else available for them at that time. This inspires me to want to talk about the CIA and the trafficking of 
crack to black communities in the 1980s. Along with that, I definitely like to talk about the militarization of the LAPD because we are in LA right now. The Contras, Freeway Rick Ross, the Dark Alliance, Gary Webb. I want to hear it all. All right. Um, (laughs) Wow. So this is this is kind of an interesting topic, right? So if you were in 1984, um, you would be listening to some pretty amazing music. Uh, the color scheme that you probably had in, on your clothing was probably obnoxious and really bright. Um, and you thought the world was going great. Everything was wonderful. Turn the corner to 1985. And just about overnight, it felt like a light switch went on. Crack cocaine was everywhere. It was on the news. It was being talked about in schools. It was creating educational programs like D.A.R.E. Mm -hmm. to get people not to do it. Then you started seeing exposés about crack babies. I kid you not, in 1986, I thought every baby born was a crack baby. That's how explosive this story was. On top of that, they made you feel like crack was in every neighborhood. And it was coming to get you. Um, it, it just was overnight and came out of nowhere. And it was in very specific neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods that were urban centers that had uh, gone into decay. So you had white flight in the 60s and 70s that created the suburbs. Um, what was left was an inner city that was not uh, very vital. Um, so you didn't have a lot of business. You didn't have a lot of uh family-owned or cell-owned businesses, so no mom-and-pop shops, or very few of them. You had a lot of uh, under-educated individuals. You had a lot of potential for crime, but it wasn't it wasn't a place of crime, but it had a potential for it. And we'll get to that in just a moment. You have this wonderful nexus of things that are happening all pretty bad to the people who are living there, who are on borderline poverty um, and what's happening is you now have a system that is available for something unique and that's street capitalism um, when it comes to drugs and this is an area that I, I really love studying mm-hmm. because it you know how how do street drugs work I mean shouldn't wouldn't the thought be I've got $50 I'm gonna go buy drugs off the street and hope that I'm getting real drug um, what's to say that that person's not going to mug you, take your money, all of that. But it really is a capitalistic system. In order to get, continue to make money, you have to have customers. Customers talk to one another. They, This was before Yelp, but you could imagine that they would have yelped about what the best spots were to go pick up your, your crack cocaine or your heroin or what have you. Um, today we have weed maps, which kind of tells you which is, which is the best dispensary to go to, right. what the prices are, those types of things. Um, But back then, it was word of mouth. And if you, as a dealer, did not provide a good product, it was going to get out and people would not buy from you. So the best way to make your money was to provide good product, provide good service. And people started to realize this. So you now had a way for people to come into these inner city areas, pick up their products, and then leave. Um, Have you ever read the book Freakonomics? Um, I actually haven't. Uh, So within it, they talk a little bit about this. And the one thing that they talk about is in order to have a good neighborhood where you can do an open air drug market, you have to have an easy access, um, either public transportation or an on off ramp from the highway. 
That's one aspect. The other aspect is you have to make it look legit for people to be going in and out of that neighborhood. Because if you're bringing in a lot of people, it's going to be very suspicious. It's going to, and if there are Karens in the neighborhood, which <laughs> happens that there aren't, um, you know, it, it's just a recipe for disaster. But these elements all together created an environment where, and I don't know if this is fact or not, but I kind of am inclined to believe it, that the CIA pushed crack cocaine, which was a relatively obscure form of cocaine, out into these neighborhoods, got people addicted, and started all of the street capitalism in these neighborhoods that they knew were depressed. Part of it was so that they could then curtail the people in that neighborhood by arresting them under very uh, vague pretenses and some trumped up drug laws. Um, so do you know how much cocaine you have to have in order to get a felony? Was it 500? 500 grams. grams? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> how much uh, crack cocaine do you have to have to get the same sentence? Was it like five? Five grams. Yeah. Yes. So just about two tablespoons worth of product versus nearly a pound and a half. Could you explain for our listeners the difference between crack cocaine oh, and sure. crack? So uh, uh, basically, um, crack cocaine is a debased form of uh, cocaine. And what that means, it's just a fancy way of saying you're adding um, a, a base. So you have acids and bases, right? Mm -hmm. So you're adding a base and you're cooking it and allowing that base to absorb all the acidic stuff. And what you're left with is whatever product you're trying to create. So with crack cocaine, it's pretty simple. It's one part cocaine, a half of a part of baking soda, uh, sodium bicarbonate, and half a part of water. And you put it on a stove, let it simmer, let it boil until all the water evaporates and what you're left with is rock cocaine, crack cocaine. To smoke. Yep. Um, and with crack cocaine, it's slightly different. Uh, you can't expose it directly to flame. That will cause it to burn and you won't get any drug off of it. So you have to, um, the non-technical term for it is freebase, meaning you have to light a surface um, that's directly either underneath it or surrounding it, but you can't light the actual product itself or it, or it destroys it. The, the problem, spoons make sense now. Exactly. So the problem with it is that when you when you take a drug, you have to think about how is it going to get to the brain because really the brain is what governs everything and that's what makes you feel uh, high or feel drunk or feel tipsy. If you ingest it, if you eat it or you drink it, it's got about a half an hour before it hits your brain, give or take. Mm -hmm. When you smoke something, you have about three minutes from the time you take that first puff until it hits your brain. Stream. And with crack cocaine, it only needs those three minutes to make you an addict. Um, wow. It's one of those drugs that is highly addictive. And if you are an addictive person, um, you become addicted with it with the first hit. Wow. So all of these things make me think that one, how did it get from being an obscure thing that would happen only among a few small groups in the US in 1984 to now a full-blown problem where everyone is cooking up their own crack cocaine. So they've learned the recipe. They've all done it in every major city in the US overnight and pushed it out to get addicts created. There's no way that an urban inner city environment that was lacking in education, 
and not to say that that's a good or a bad thing, but let's call a spade a spade. They're lacking in education. They are lacking in resources and infrastructure. How did they simultaneously develop the same product and push it out into their environment across multiple cities? That's, that's my question. And that's what makes me think it had to have intervention from somewhere else. What role would you say the Contras had in all of this? Can we set the political um, scene oh, sure. going on in the United States abroad? and Sure. So home? abroad, we have uh, the war on drugs is, is on, a, on its way. And part of the claim that they're trying to make with the war on drugs is if we can find the fields where they're growing the crop and eradicate it and then destroy any evidence of it anywhere that it's being processed near that grow site, then we have ended the problem. We won't have cocaine getting into our country. So in Nicaragua, you had two major factions, um, and the only one that I can remember are the Contras, but uh, the other one was a liberal party that was a political party, both of them were, trying to control the government of Nicaragua. The U.S. realized, one, that it could eradicate, in quotes, uh, a majority of the cocaine supply of their rival of the Contras by supplying the Contras with arms, uh, education, uh, money, as a way to stabilize the country, or so that's how it was portrayed anyways. So we're providing all of these things as an insurgency tool to allow the Contras to take control because we think that they will be the more conservative branch and will stamp out cocaine. Unbeknownst to the American public, the Contras had created this deal, uh, basically, where it would be their cocaine that would be supplying the cocaine markets of the U.S. Uh, Because at this time, I mean, if you think about all those corny shows like Miami Vice and things like that, probably way before your time and probably (laughs) have never seen it, definitely YouTube it and watch just like five minutes. That's all you need. Got it. Um, But basically, it made you feel like cocaine was this huge thing um, that people wanted and needed. And it had a lot of glamour behind it. It had a lot of prestige um, and a lot of money associated with it. So you had all these different organizations in South America that were trying to become the supplier of cocaine for the U.S. Because let's face it, out of every country in the world, the U.S. consumes more drugs than any other place, including Portugal, where they have everything legal. Um, And that's just the nature of the U.S. And I think that's just who we are. Uh, That being said, the Contras were then trying to make the play to become the cocaine producer for the U.S. Um, And I think that a lot of that happened you know, not so subtly off the record. Um, Oliver North kind of brought that to light when he was uh, being put through all kinds of trials um, in the latter part of the 80s. And it kind of came to light that this is the scenario that we were living in uh, unbeknownst to us. I see. And what connection did that have with Freeway Ross and Los Angeles. (laughs) That's where it gets a little tricky um, because it's not as clear. But what what I would hypothesize here is that the Contras were looking for a quick way to get drugs into cities in the U.S. Rick Ross just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and happened to become one of these key dealers that were receiving Contra funds. Unfortunately, um, at the time, he was between shipments, so didn't have very much supply on him. But his house was raided here in Los Angeles, uh, not too far from us, about uh, 
about a half mile to oh, a wow. mile uh, away from where we are on campus right now. And they raided his house. Now, luckily, he didn't have a lot, but it was enough for them to create some uh, trumped up charges off of these new drug laws that just went in through the Drug Abuse Act in 1986, um, where if you had five grams of crack cocaine, that's it. You are going away. The problem was they tried to send him away for life and people started freaking out because how are you going to do this? And it was quickly shown that this is a racial issue, um, which led to some riots here in California. Um, in the media, it was being portrayed as we brought down this drug kingpin and the people who are addicted to the product, they're rebelling, they're acting out, they're trying to get this guy freed because they want to have access to their drug. When in fact, that's not the case. They were rebelling and acting out because of the sentence that was applied to him. Right. So that's kind of my take on it um, in a nutshell. Gotcha. Could we talk a little bit about the militarization of the LAPD? Oh, yeah. So because of that event, um, from that point forward, you see a, a change in the way that the military. Well, I'm sorry, not uh, <laughs> I mean, LAPD, um, how LAPD functions. Um, and we've had a few riots since then. Um, our most frequent, which wasn't a riot, it was a very peaceful march, um, happened to bring out the worst in some of these uh, individuals as well, which was just this past year. Um, that being said, there's been this increase in violent activity on on the part of the police where they don't, where they no longer are saying, you know, things like, put your hands up, let me see your hands. Um, or I'm going to fire. It seems to me that they just get out of the car firing um, or applying as much pressure as they can, forceful pressure to get people to comply. Right. And a lot of that is due to this event with Rick Ross when they tried to control or corral um, the populace who were really going uh, to march on City Hall to ask for his fair clemency and trial, um, which is an American right. I mean, that that's something that we have in our Constitution. And yet, little by little, that has been eroded through some of these drug acts. Uh, the militarization of LAPD was a result of that. And if you look at other uh, police departments, New York, for example, they don't have the same riot gear that they do in L.A. L.A. comes to these events like they're going to war. Um, they have shields, they have face masks, they have really heavy batons, and they come armed with tear gas and a variety of other arsenal of weapons that they can then deploy on the public, uh, with their favorite now being tasing. So um, do watch out. So the tactic was during that time, the LA riots, was it, was it the chokehold? Was it, that? That's where it was pioneered. That's where it was developed and created into what we saw happening just a few years ago, um, where people are being held down, they're being um, choked, they're being, uh, in the eyes of the LAPD, what they're trying to do is minimize that person's ability to be a threat, to neutralize them as a threat. And if they can do that by making them pass out, great. The problem is, not everyone is skilled at choke holding someone in, and putting them into um, paralysis. Mm -hmm. Most people cut off the windpipe, don't know when to release, and the person dies. And it's not a pleasant death either. But this is a tactic that's being taught and shared and 
expanded upon by the LAPD as a method of riot control. One narrative that was pushed, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that like the black man specifically on like crack cocaine, they were prone to more violence. They were uncontrollable. And like that was a justification for tactics like the chokehold and... Oh, yeah. Cocaine as a drug has one of two effects on people, and you can never determine what that effect will be going into it. And one could be pure euphoria, where you are having a wonderful experience, and the other is pure aggression. And we're not sure who's going to be aggressive and who's not. Um, It tends to be males more than females. However, that's being sensationalized. It's being exaggerated and then focused, hyper-focused, onto black males only. Um, so that that's definitely where this all came from. Wow. I actually was doing, when I was doing research, I was listening to another podcast where he talked about there was a connection between the no-knock warrants and Breonna Taylor's death. Like how the American society and government viewed drugs, it ultimately had a connection. And I had never put that together, but that makes sense. And it's like, the war on drugs still has its effect now. It's it's not, I don't know if I would say it's ended. Would you say it's... Oh, it's not ended. And I think that we are ready for another revolution of it. And I don't say that lightly. And I, I say that with a lot of disgust because our view of drugs being penalized, being part of the criminal justice system needs to change. If we're going to really tackle this problem and get to the heart of addiction, we need to treat it as a social problem. Mm -hmm. We need to really focus in on those things that are going to be agents of change. And by putting someone in prison, by locking them up, by ascribing all of this violence onto their family, onto their environment, onto their community, what are we really showing? Um, nothing. The punitive aspects of trying to curtail drugs uh, with all of these different criminal justice tactics has only done one thing, and that is to create a society that is both afraid of the police um, and the police who are overly aggressive when it comes to stopping someone on the street, for example, or breaking into someone's house without a warrant. And it's created this search and seizure mentality that needs to change because right now if you get arrested and you are arrested for any drug charge that is an automatic felony which means when you come out you cannot get a loan you can't join the military you can't get a house loan a school loan nothing Um, sometimes you're even barred from purchasing a home in certain areas so think about that as a young person of color you come out of the prison system having done your time, you did the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Quote unquote, right thing, um, which I still take a lot of offense to because I don't think we should be locking people up. Right. But let's say you've, you've gone through the process and you come out thinking, okay, now I'm 21 years old. I've spent the last five years in prison. Let me start my life over again. And you have all these obstacles placed in front of you where you can't get a job, you can't get a loan, you can't do X, Y, and Z because of your criminal record. Now, you know, in a white neighborhood, if that were the case, they would work to expunge that record. But in terms of of people of color, are they even told that you can do that? Probably not. Um, And if they are presented with it, it's probably presented as such a process that is so time consuming and so difficult to do that they're trying to push them away from even pursuing it. That's not fair either. And that needs to stop. And that's also part of the reason why I think it needs to become a social issue rather than 
a criminal justice issue. 100%. I really want to highlight that as I move into the cannabis space because there are a lot of people who were arrested simply for nonviolent drug possession. And now cannabis is becoming more and more legalized within the United States. I think over half of the states within the U.S. Um, legalized uh, medical marijuana and more and more states are legalizing recreational marijuana. And as we close up, I want to talk a little bit about how regulation gets in the way of those people who were once a part of this industry and they got demonized for it. And now this industry is all of a sudden on the rise and there's all these regulations blocking them from yeah. being a part of it. So <clears throat> one thing to think about with legalization, it's not like a light switch. You know, your government doesn't vote to legalize and boom, the light switch is on and now you can purchase cannabis everywhere. Right. Uh, there's a lot that has to happen. You have to have storefronts. You have to have um, growers who are certified um, so that you're getting a quality product. You have to have um, a way to take money. You know, in California for the last, I would say, 10 years, there's been a debate. How can we use ATM cards at cannabis shops? Because if you flip your, your card over, your ATM card, that should have FDIC on the back, which is a federal stamp, meaning that it's federally insured and protected under the treasury system. If you're selling something that is federally illegal, the FDIC is not going to certify to your business to accept ATMs or accept credit card transactions. So that limited, in the beginning, how you could do these transactions. And that, that's just one example of a regulatory hurdle that people had to go through. Now you can use your ATM at these establishments. The other big one is taxation. If you look at every state that has legalized, either for recreational or medicinal use, you have no uniform tax code being applied. California is kind of in the middle in terms of the amount of tax that gets applied, um, but you have states where it's 35% being applied on retail only. Um, oh, wow. what's, the, what's the equity in that? And the part of that is, again, we have no federal code telling us this is how much you should tax. Um, no federal code saying this is where the money should be distributed to once you've collected that tax. So you have states that are collecting taxes in the hopes that if it does legalize, they'll have a record showing, look, we were legit, we did what we were supposed to do and followed the rules. Now, the nice thing in California, they're taking that money and they're putting it back into the community. They are applying it towards uh, equal housing for people who are elderly. They're applying it towards educating uh, police and law enforcement on what a DUI looks like in this new cannabis-enabled uh, world. Um, so there is some good going towards it. But again, another regulatory hurdle with the taxation, what do we do with those taxes? And it's not very clear. Um, you have issues of how many people you can have working in your store in some states um, where you have to have a minimum of at least three. So someone to watch the door, someone to watch the cash register and someone to help the, the uh, customer. And now what my fear is, is that we're going to start seeing the FDA come in and say, you can't make medical claims on the cannabis that has not been tested. Um, so you can't say things like, this is good for sleepy. Uh, if you need to sleep, this is good for your insomnia. If you need to eat, this is good to help boost your appetite. The FDA will come in and say, you can't make that claim. You haven't tested this product for that indication. 
So that means that a lot of that information is going to either have to be stripped away or turned into folk knowledge where your bud tender tells you, oh, you're having problems sleeping. I got the perfect thing for you. But they can't make the claim medically. So regulation is a beautiful thing in on paper. It's supposed to protect us, make sure that everything that we take is safe and effective and that we don't have bad products out there on paper. We have things like tobacco. We have things like alcohol. We have things like opioids that are available in our market right now that are far more deadly than cannabis ever could be. Um, and the problem is cannabis is put onto a schedule one drug. Do you know who put it on there as a schedule one? Is it Nixon? Nixon did, but <laughs> under the auspices of your friend, Harry Anslinger. Oh, wow. So he advocated for it to be at the top tier of the DEA hit list. And it's a schedule one drug, which means it has no medical utility, highly addictive, addictive yeah. and should not be used. Um, I would argue that people don't become addicted to cannabis. They become addicted to the ritual of consuming cannabis with their friends or, you know, after work, just like having a glass of wine, you may have a blunt. Who knows? Whatever, whatever you do to relax is what you do. But that culture is what's addictive. It's not the drug itself. Right. Um, so to have it as a schedule one is a slap in the face for everyone who's trying to make money off of this in a way that is holistic um, because believe me there are health benefits there we just don't know them because we are confined as a research organization to only use one plant and that plant is from 1972 it's at the university of mississippi and if you get federal dollars like i do to do research you can only get that plant. Oh, wow. You can't test hybrids. You can't test any of the new strains. You can't test anything that's been grown in hydroponics. It's so limiting. It's so limiting because the level of THC that we're working with is like 3%. Oh, <laughs> and in some, California, they're pushing like 30, 40. It's going up. Oh, yeah, definitely. And in Oregon, it's going up as well. Um, but we have no idea what that does medically because we can't test it. So that's another regulation that is, is holding our hands and keeping us from being able to fully explore the wonders of this world called cannabis. Wow. There's a lot to think about here. Definitely. We are running out of time. I had such an amazing conversation with you. For all the USC students who are listening, uh, I'm sure your classes are amazing. Would you mind sharing sure. which classes you're taking if people want to learn more and continue oh, these sure. real raw conversations? So if you want to have a really good look at history, I teach a general elective. Um, it's RxRS201. It's called the History and Geography of Drugs, or as I like to call it, from the Stone Age to the Stoner Age. That's funny. Um, <laughs> That's good. I also teach a class called Buzzed, uh, Modern Drugs of Addiction. Um, that's RxRS uh, 414. Are these in the pharmacy school? They're in the pharmacy gotcha. school. Um, but they're open to anyone. Uh, we don't restrict to our major. Uh, and then another class that I teach, I'm also the co, uh, well, I'm not the co-chair anymore. I was a, uh, made the associate director of the Institute for Addiction Sciences Education Committee. Um, and I co-teach with a friend of mine from uh, Keck, a class that is all about addiction science so we call it foundations to addiction science it's a 200 level course that one's a really fun one and i also teach one with annenberg but that's a, a, a ge seminar so mostly for freshmen and uh 
and freshmen, um, <laughs> and that's drugs in the media, uh, where gotcha. we actually go through some of these issues, but we look oh, at so how cool. the media frames and organizes our thought processes around some of these substances. Wow, that's really cool. Do you hear that, everyone? Register for a class with Dr. Church. Thank you so much for coming on our first episode of Breaking Bud. I learned so much. I had a great time just being able to show off my little knowledge here and there. And your presence was greatly appreciated. I loved how inclusive you were and how passionate you seem to be about this. I also want to thank Professor Barofio for believing in my vision. And finally, I want to thank Max and the rest of the Cannabis at USC team for all of your support. Thank you everyone for listening. Please subscribe to Breaking Bud and leave us a review of what you might want to hear in the future episodes. Bye.